Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. Um, I'm Vice President at Autism Spectrum Therapies, part of the Learn family of companies, providing services to kids with autism, other developmental disabilities, and truly all kids um, all across the country. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. We're, we're here today kind of picking up um, our, our new ongoing talk, conversation, you know, sometimes I, I want to almost say study because I feel like that's what we're kind of getting the benefit of um, with our guest. Uh, Hannah Rue is going to be back with us today, um, kind of picking up on our conversation um, and, and taking it in some new directions, which I think is just so important for all of us. Um, so I could go on and on and talk about her and how awesome she is, but you guys already know that because you heard us last week. So let me welcome Hannah back to the show. Hannah, it's great to have you again. So great to be here, Rob. Thank you again for the kind introduction. <laughs> I, I I love how we uh, how we are getting to do this now um, because you know as I said I think the first time you were on the show you know these are the conversations that you and I have kind of like after we're done with work over dinner or over a drink or kind of like mm-hmm. during one of our breaks when we go off on these crazy tangents and um, you know. I think one of the big tangents that we kind of go off on and, and that I want us to go on today is really focused in on um, the older population, you know, and mm-hmm. I kind of want to start our, our conversation about teens and adults and it with, with a question that I get a lot, um, you know, for the last, particularly back in like 2011, but over the last seven years, I feel like I would get these questions of, you know, we've got these new insurance regulations. My insurance company, despite what the law says, my insurance company is saying, no, we're not going to approve um, ABA for a 17-year-old or for a 20-year-old. And, yeah, the law goes up to 21, but I'm getting pushback. Um, and I remember getting the question from about 10 different families, is there an article is there a study? Is there something you can point me to that I can give my insurance company to say ABA is effective? Um, and I, I always struggled. I always had a hard time figuring out what do I give them? So my, my question in two parts to you is, is there actually something to give a, a, a parent to reference? Um, and um, knowing that it's limited, why is it? limited? Why, why are there so little studies out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things going into the late 90s and like what you said in the past, um, in the past seven or eight years, we're seeing all of the, you know, what some folks call that first wave of kids who were identified and yeah. participated in early intervention. Now they're getting to um, adulthood and 
the families are facing kind of the same fights that they saw with trying to get early intervention and the educational interventions for their kids. So now it's almost like um, they're going back to square one, trying to fight for access. Um, and we do have resources um, and studies now, not as much as we have for the younger kids, um, but we mm-hmm. are seeing more and more in terms of um, single subject research. So that's what a lot of behavior mm-hmm. analysts do, where they talk about um, someone's response to an intervention. And then we are seeing some more group design. Uh, research, so those mm-hmm. are the the larger um, research studies. But one of the one of the more recent and well done studies that I often point to was a meta analysis uh, done by one of my former colleagues, um, Matthew Roth and Florence Dejanero Reed. A meta analysis mm-hmm. is really just a nice um, a nice way to look at a number of different studies and how well they were done and meaningful outcomes from them. Um, and what we found from this meta analysis is that there there were studies out there looking at adolescents and young adults and that behavioral interventions are effective for a number of different things like social skills and pre-vocational training. Um, but one thing is for certain is we need more research and we need more funding funding for research for looking at things for these um, older kids and young adults. So, you know, look, there's like four questions I could ask just off of this one meta-analysis that you just referenced. Um, But, you know, let me start with maybe, you know, the easiest question to to think of, but it might not be the easiest answer is, you know, I I go to conferences, I I go to different... um, BCBA meetings, and you know, I hear people throw out different studies. You know, I, God, the, mm-hmm. the number of times I've heard the Jane Howard study referenced is, mm-hmm. you know, I can't even count. Um, I've mm-hmm. never heard of this. The study you just mm-hmm. mentioned, I've never heard of, and I've actually worked with adults for the majority mm-hmm. of my career. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why is it that I've never heard of? this study or, or the studies that it's looking at, but I've heard of the Jane Howard study. I've, I've heard of Ivar Lovas's stuff. I, I, you know, there's, there's those different studies. People can be like, oh, I've heard of that, and I've heard of that, and I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that for this type of population. Right. And, and I think, um, you know, in terms of the funding, the money, and the grants that are available to researchers who are looking at the, the younger kids or the elementary age kids, mm-hmm. um, I think there's probably a lot more funding um, as opposed to those folks who are doing research in the adult um, area or the young adult area. Uh, so maybe not all the same fame and glory, if you will, when there's not a lot of money attached to it um, because the, it's harder to get those resources out there and to fund these larger studies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you heard of uh, Howard and uh, Wyman is another guy um, who's out there doing some great stuff. Peter Gerhardt is a fantastic um, contributor to the literature and um, advocacy for young adults and adults with autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, we're seeing a lot more folks. So in this, um, in this meta-analysis that I've cited, um, Matthew's mm-hmm. meta-analysis, uh, Dr. Roth, I should say, um, he looked at only 43 studies. So that's still pretty limited. You know, and they, mm-hmm. they span the gamut of looking at various educational things like how to you know, improve writing skills and, like I said, social skills um, and things like that. So the, 
the majority of them are single subjects. So they have um, what we'd refer to as low end. That is not a lot of people in the right. studies. Um, whereas you see a lot of folks who are doing research with the younger kids, they're, they're able to do and fund those larger studies. So I think it's a matter of funding that really allows researchers to get the word out to um, you know, develop the websites and the resources that draw people in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's answered your question, so, but it's so it, it was my talking point. <laughs> no, it does. It does. I mean, and, and look, to be clear for our audience, you know, when you talk about funding and I talk about funding, we're actually talking about two different types of funding. You know, you I, right, I tend exactly. to focus in on the funding of the service to the kid, and you're really focusing mm-hmm. in on funding for the research study. You know, I focus on the insurance funding, and you're focusing in on grant funding. And I think it's mm-hmm. really interesting that there's not the grant funding. You know, it, we're acknowledging there's a lot less studies out there. We're acknowledging that there's this, like, um, the we're, we're hitting kind of this, like, funnel point. You know, like you said at the top, Hey, 10 years ago, these kids were three, four, five. Now they're 13, 14, 15. And you're starting to see some, this kind of like, I kind of think about it as like, um, uh, you, you, I don't know, maybe like a, a kink in like a hose or, you know, someone used to say like mm-hmm. a, a pig and a snake, like, like that image of like mm-hmm. a, a cartoon snake kind of eating something. And then you've got this big bulge kind of coming through. Like we're hitting that right now. Um, so I think it's interesting that we are acknowledging that there's this big interest area. Like the a- autism societies are super interested in this right now, yet there's not that grant funding for it. There's not that glory for it. And so it's kind of, to me, that's a really interesting kind of paradigm of something that the autism community is uber interested in right now gets less glory than something that maybe they don't have as, inter- as much interest at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and I do yeah. think that's starting to change. I think that we're starting to see more foundation grants. And certainly, just nice. like with the push with the awareness for the younger kids, what it took um, in some cases and in some regions of the country and the world was, you know, it's the parents of the younger kids who got out there and, you know, had their voices heard. So I think that's where we're starting to see more advocacy and more resources because, as you said, you know, as we talked about, the, these kids yeah. are getting older. But I think it holds the same thing. You also see folks who are in areas of politics and policy, again, bringing awareness and making mm-hmm. that push to get more money uh, toward that uh, the grant funding. Um, but, you know, we still have a lot more money that's in the Department of Education, and that's where you see a lot of, um, a lot of the funding coming from um, the, mm-hmm. the school-age kids. So, but I, I hold out hope because we do see more things popping up in terms of universities developing programs yeah. for individuals with autism, and we see more about um, teens with autism and their um, social groups and resources for them. Um, where my concern lies is, you know, with an autism spectrum diagnosis, you can have individuals that do very well, in, you know, independently and just need some supports maybe in the, you know, social areas. But then you also have, you know, those adults who are more impaired and who need more supports mm-hmm. um, and who will rely on 24-hour care. 
Um, and so my concern always goes toward that group now as we need to provide them with, uh, we need to do some good research on how to improve their quality of life and, you know, making their lives meaningful um, in the best way they can, we can while pro- providing those protections um, because they are a vulnerable population. So, you know, here's I, one of the things that I, I, I want to kind of go back to a little bit is you, you, in this meta-analysis you mentioned um, they looked at single case designs with social skills. They were looking at it with some pre-vocational skills and uh, writing. Um, you know, I, I think back to our conversation last month where we were talking about, you know, when you think about the the efficacy of of the of these ABA and and the research behind it to show it's effective, we're not looking at ABA is effective on this big, broad spectrum, we're saying that, like, this specific intervention is effective. This intervention to work on this thing is proven to work. And we're kind of, like, you almost, I kind of think about it like um, you're, you're kind of uh, proving each individual um, part to the, the building. You know, we're, we're creating this building, and you kind of have to make each part of the building constructed to be proven to work, and then you kind of stack them all together, and now you're creating this structure. Um, that all makes sense when you think about, well, of course, a five-year-old, like, they need social skills, and here's how developmentally that's going to kind of lead to this improvement in this child's life, um, communication, writing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, w- there's been a lot of research to show, like, here is the, here's how these things benefit this person, and here's the trajectory both of um, developmental gains they can make in addition to just, like, the actual just day-to-day gains in, in the specific skill. You know, we're dealing with a different population here. Um, we're dealing with people who are more already have developed more, and therefore, you know, as you look at any child development research, you, you know, a 16-year-old, uh, the, the gains developmentally are going to be at a slower pace than a three-year-old. You know, just human brain development and things of that nature. Um, you know, pulling from both of your hats, because you have a psychology background on top of this behavior analysis background, you know, what, one of the questions I always kind of get is, at least from insurance companies, is like, what is that we should expect? What is the gain we should expect for this 18-year-old, for this 23-year-old, for this 30-year-old? And so, you know, when we look at teens and adults, it is a different trajectory um, and I think we try and kind of make an apples-to-apples comparison of, well, a three-year-old should get 30 hours a week, so therefore a 23-year-old should get 30 hours a week. Um, given different trajectories, is that the way we should be looking at this? Do we need to really acknowledge that this is more of an apples-to-oranges comparison, or or is it really still apples-to-apples? You know, I think um, what we've seen in in the research that we do have, for example, the studies that were reviewed in this meta-analysis is just what you said. So a lot of those same um, interventions, you know, like modeling and video modeling and task analyses, you know, writing out steps and whatnot, what we're finding is, surprise, surprise, these things are effective for older individuals. The way we produce them and the materials we use you know, should be different because, like you said, developmentally, these are different, you know, these are different individuals. They are older, um, so we need to be doing things that are appropriate for their age group and their interests. 
So we can use these same techniques with a tweak, and I always encourage folks to, um, you know, make use of, um, of technology where possible because you can um, embed supports and all sorts of things that we have available to us now without really stigmatizing that individual. Um, so folks are getting creative about how to provide more supports for older individuals. Um, but I think what's different is, um, is identifying, you know, what... Um, what this individual is going to do for the rest of their life. You know, so with a neurotypical teen or young adult, you know, they go into college and you can talk to them about, you know, what they want to major in, what their vocational Mm -hmm. interests are. Um, And they do a lot of exploration on their own. And I think where some of our kids are limited in that exploration. So what we need to do is be better at helping them identify their strengths and then finding that path of, what they want to do so that we can then gear all of the all of the work and the learning um, opportunities toward making them better at that. So, you know, the elementary kids and whatnot, we're teaching them how to engage in, a, you know, developmentally appropriate play and maybe chores at home, whereas the young adults, you know, do they need to pay bills? Do they need to learn online banking? Do they need to learn, um, you know, various clerical skills? Uh, so it does, although the techniques are the same, um, and we tweak them to, you know, be a little bit more mature and sophisticated, um, I think the outcomes are a little bit more complex that we're looking for just because, you know, how do you help someone, you know, an adult achieve, mm-hmm. um, you know, their best life with the tools that we have, which are somewhat limited because, again, there, there's not as much research out there. So I do think that that's where the difference lies is, you know, how do you help someone become an adult and, and figure out, you know, what they're going to do with the rest of their lives and what leisure activities will be available to them and what kind of income resources that they're going to have. Um, you know, what kind of vacations are they going to take? Do they want to go out hiking? Do they want to, um, you know, go to a big city? Do they want to go to Disney? Those are all things that can be a little bit more challenging to help an adult through um, if you don't have the resources or the education and um, you know, the training to, to provide that kind of support to them and to their family. You know, I, I'm, I'm listening to the different components that you're kind of bringing up right now, and it makes me kind of wonder, when when do you work on this? When do you start with this? You know, we've had these We've we've had a lot of different conversations over the years on the show of, you know, when do you actually start working on planning for adulthood? Is it a is it adolescence? Is it teens? Is it when you're in adulthood? And I'm just kind of curious from a research perspective, has there been anything looking at when to start targeting these skills? You know, or or have studies been particularly focused on specific age groups when they when they start these you know interventions? Yeah, so there's, um, in a couple of the systematic reviews that I mentioned last time, um, which again was just uh, research groups looking at large numbers of studies, well, in this case, not so large numbers, there's just a handful of studies, um, what was identified as being like transition youth would be about 13 to 14 to 17 years of age. So, and oftentimes I think that's guided by the IEP process, the individual education plan. 
because what you're starting to do is look toward adulthood and identify um, what that individual is going to be working toward in their adult life. And so I notice in a lot of the IEP meetings that we have, that's when we start having that discussion, not only about, you know, that trajectory of adulthood, but also guardianship, living situations, and things of that nature. Um, so I don't know if there's necessarily um, research specific on that um, that whole component of transition, there's a lot of supports that are now available um, to families that guide them through the transition process, like how to move from an IEP to more of adult planning and what services are available and who funds those things. Um, you know, and like what, what I've said earlier is we see the um, participants in a number of studies, once they get to that young adulthood, we see fewer and fewer studies of high school age and young adults. So we see a lot more um, through middle school um, and early high school. Uh, so although there's not a lot of research, what we do know, what does exist tells us that these methods that we've been using, you know, these behavioral interventions, all these different components that really come from applied behavior analysis are effective. Um, so any families who are struggling with where to go next, I um, would advise them to list a number of different websites that have, you know, how to help your kid transition. And for some kids, it might be earlier on, you know, so for um, a lot of kids who might be impacted by uh, different comorbid diagnoses, so an individual who has a diagnosis of autism but also has a diagnosis of intellectual disability might be uh, dealing with more significant impairments, and so maybe you might start working on functional skills um, and, you know, living skills a little bit earlier or in a different way than you might be working with an individual who has, a, you know, just a diagnosis of autism. Um, who's looking toward, you know, getting a job or going to college or something like that. Um, so that can also determine um, the different times that you might start changing from more of an academic, um, you know, adaptive behavior to more of, you know, functioning in the adult world or coming up with more appropriate leisure skills, um, things of that nature. It, you know, it strikes me as being um, very complicated to be a parent and figure out the when, or even to be an individual on, on the spectrum to figure out when, when do I pivot? You know, and, and, I, and I mean this with taking into consideration the way the system works. You know, I think about you know, what we've talked about. Every kid is different. It's a spectrum mm -hmm. disorder. You also have comorbidity, and you may have a, a dual diagnosis that needs to be taken into consideration. But when I look at about from a systems point of view, I, I feel like I, whether you're looking at it from an insurance company perspective, a school district perspective, the types of funding that is available to an adult out there, it, it seems very complicated to me of when do you make this choice to pivot? Like I've thought of all the IEPs I've been a part of where – um, one person on the team says, you know what, this 11-year-old, we really need to start working and planning for adulthood today. And there's inevitably someone on the team who says, wait a second, that seems way too early to give up on the track we're on. Why, why are we making this decision for this 11-year-old today? And it feels like there's the system kind of functions in this like black and white manner of, well, I have to decide on what this kid's adulthood is going to look like now, and we have to stay on that path. Um, 
Or you're kind of like, well, we're going to wait. We're going to stay the course. But now we've waited too long, and then the services, the funding, the options, the availability of people, which we, which I want to talk about in a second, is you know, the availability of people qualified to actually do this work when this kid gets older may not exist. And now you don't have the availability to the resources that you might have had when this kid was, in fact, 11. You know, it's, it seems like it's a black and white world of the choices a parent has to make or this individual has to make, yet everything you just described are shades of gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why it's really important. And again, it's just like I always talk about, you know, coming into this this transition period as just like when you were going into early intervention. So like I said previously, I find that parents have those same struggles. With early intervention, they're trying to figure out who the providers are, who pays for what, you know, how to get their kids to the different types of therapies. And so when you come into transition, it's the same sort of thing. So the IEP process, you have to have something about transition services in there by the time the kid turns 16, but a lot of places start doing that earlier. And what you were speaking to, I've seen a number of times in a number of different meetings with several folks um, wanting to move on into um, training for those leisure skills and things like that, while other folks on the team want to hold on to, you know, still pushing the academics and and things of that nature. And what I always tell parents is um, be familiar with, you know, where this individual is going to live and what's available in your community. Mm-hmm. You know, so whatever region of the country you're in, you want to make sure that you've made contact with maybe a special education advocate um, or the ARC or whatever agency you're, um, you might be affiliated with already and start to look into, you know, what are the living arrangement options that I have, who funds those, what are the deadlines, guardianship, and then you know, second, you know, the continuing educa- education in terms of vocational training um, or, or college education. Um, so whatever region you're in, you have to get to know, you know, the field that you're playing in and who the players are just like you did when you were getting into early intervention because um, I think mm-hmm. that's going to help to make some determinations. We would, in some cases, for some of the kids that I worked with um, in Massachusetts, we knew we had talked with parents about what the living arrangements would be, and the parents were leaning towards trying to get their individual into a group home setting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in order to access those resources, like you were saying, you kind of have to get your name in there early. You kind of have to know what you're yeah. aiming for. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking about that and trying to gear them toward everything that could make that happen for them. But, you know, I think it's going back to uh, – you know, the family planning, what the guardian's parents and that individual wants, and then the parent, the team actually making that happen, telling them the options, providing them with choices, you know, looking at the data in terms of what their individual is um, succeeding at, where their strengths are, where their weaknesses or deficits are at, you know, and providing some reasonable options. But, you know, if they say we want this type of living arrangement, these types of leisure activities, then we need to start pointing them in that direction and identifying the individuals in the community who can make that happen. So let's let's take that last piece, individuals in the community who can make that happen. What, what I can't shake, and, um, I mean, I have a lot of, I have a lot of opinions about this, and 
I, some of them I think are, are probably, at least in our ABA world, a little less popular. Um, mm-hmm. I, I struggle with who are those individuals? Like I'm, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking about probably some recent act events I've, I've attended, you know, I'm, I'm sitting down in an mm-hmm. event and uh, I'm going to the, I was at the grand opening of a new diagnostic center. Really exciting. Mm-hmm. They're doing comprehensive diagnostic evaluations in um, the Inland Empire here in Southern California. Um, it's a community that is really going to benefit from this great center. And I'm sitting down next to two different folks, groups of people. Group one are BCBAs, you know, really research-driven clinicians, and they primarily focus in on individuals who are getting early intervention or um, children's services. So we're talking probably 90%, if not more, of their clients are like eight and under. Um, Mm -hmm. So the other group, the other side to me, are people who focus solely on teens and adults, and they're 90% teens and adults. There's not a single BCBA observing, Mm -hmm. supervising, monitoring, managing any program. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a haves versus the have-nots from a science point of view. Um, so how critical, you know, when we think about this research, one of the things I want to, I kind of want to tie it back to this meta-analysis, you know, we've got this, if, if we can kind of leave the system aside, so many of us in, in our field are trained, all right, great, you got that BCBA, you now know how to do this, or this is the standard of care, you know, you and I, how many parents have you and I spoken to about the importance of a BCBA supervising their, their child's program? Yet mm-hmm. that's not what adult services look like for the most part across the country. Um, mm-hmm. Does the research point to, or do you have anything else to kind of say like, hey, like that's okay? Like is there, is there a restrictiveness to be like, hey, this task analysis needs to be overseen by these people? And is, is this family or is this individual getting less if it's not? You know, in, in my clinical experience now that, you know, I started in the field of autism 20 years ago, and I've worked with very little kids, 18 months old, and adults mm-hmm. in a variety of settings, you know, into their late 60s. And what was heartbreaking just as a person um, and frustrating as a professional was the lack of expertise in those adult settings. So when you're walking mm-hmm. into a sheltered workshop or you're walking into a, you know, some sort of vocational type of setting um, that's funded through, you know, um, health and human services or funded through some sort of mental health agency, uh, the budget just isn't there to provide that level of expertise. And that's something that yeah. um, I was battling against in, with a number of different agencies to fund supervisor or that clinician, um, whether it's a, a BCBA uh, a clinical psychologist or, um, you know, clinical social worker, someone who has that knowledge and background about best practices for young adults and adults on the autism spectrum. Um, and I do think that that's a significant problem in the area of staffing individuals. Um, when I did work for um, a state agency that ran a number of adult group homes, 
I was one uh, behavior interventionist for like five different group homes. Um, being stretched so thin isn't uncommon in this field, um, but it was something new to them to actually have someone with expertise. Um, you know, so I do think that that's a significant problem. I think that's a that's a point that the that the system, um, whatever adult system you're in. Um, if you can identify a level of expertise of individuals who have, you know, a BCBA or um, some sort of license or credential with expertise in how to treat autism, um, you know, I would advise parents to, to look very closely at those resources and, you know, take that into consideration because expertise does provide you with a different level of training of your staff and oversight and supervision. So, you know, how, you know, it, it wouldn't be a conversation between you and I if, if I didn't go into a little bit more of a, you know, controversial kind of <laughs> area within all of this within our field, you know. And, and, and where I'm kind of sometimes thinking is like I agree with you. There are limited resources. There's there's a lot of limitations in what's available when you start going into these these programs. And you know, and, and I've been the outside consultant brought in to help consult with these programs. Um, I've worked as the as the frontline staff. You know, I, I go to these conferences and I hear people talking about the RBT and I hear people talking about BCBAs. And, you know, normally when people start talking about the lack of availability of behavior analysts across the country, you know, I always hear it within in the scope of like little ones. You know, they're not even mm-hmm. thinking about this population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, I don't want to give the impression that I think all these certifications are, are bad because I hold one. I maintain it. Um, I believe mm-hmm. in it. And I, I, I obtained it at a time when it wasn't a requirement. It was something I wanted right. to get because I believed in where it was going. All of that said, I, I can't shake the feeling every time I'm listening to an RBT presentation or a, B, a BCBA presentation is, are we basically pricing adults out of our services? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that yeah, there's a level of risk, and I think that we're seeing some of those outcomes now um, with, you know, all of these different boards and regulations and credentials that are available. Yeah, you and I were, were doing it when, you know, it was still a paper-pencil test and there was just a handful of folks, you know, across the country that were doing it. And now we're putting out folks with, I think in too many cases, uh, without some of experience and expertise. Yeah, BCBA, RB, you know, yeah, I think that we have a lot of programs, uh, a lot of online programs. There are a lot that are very high quality, but I think there are a lot that are not. And they're also not providing the clinical experiences that, in, that you know, yeah. individuals who will be the future leaders of our field, um, they're not getting that. You know, so they don't have the, they don't have that 20 years experience of, you know, no behavior analyst in existence. You're working with a clinical psychologist or a social worker, someone who has, you know, who's uh, more familiar with the behavioral philosophy, you know, behaviorism and and using applied behavior analysis without all the lingo. Um, But yeah, I think there, there is a problem with, you know, as we move forward, we need to keep an eye on the prize, and that's providing quality services for these folks and making it accessible to folks, to everyone. So, how you know, do you, how do you then, how do we then do that? You know, I think about like, um, you know, you've mentioned Peter Gerhard already, and I think about his, the program that he started at Rutgers, which is now mm-hmm. kind of is being run by a lot of great, great folks. I think Bob LaRue is still over there and, and, and he does like mm-hmm. amazing work. And, you know, that program has a behavior analyst 
at 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 the peak, and then there's there's more beneath, you know. But at the same time, there's not. I I, I haven't observed it myself, but I'm assuming is there's not a behavior analyst in there directly supervising every single thing in there. Just like I'm assuming there's not a BCABA. It, it, do we need to think a little bit about some sort of middle ground? You know, you can't go from from zero to sixty. We we kind of right. need to take some stepwise along the way. I mean, is the is it that we're kind of somewhat lacking this like middle ground to allow us to take a couple steps in this population? Because it does kind of feel like you almost have to be. Well, I'm getting my adult services from an AST where we're doing it this like heavily regulated or heavily structured way, um, which is coming from a board. Or you know, you're in Louisiana. Um, mm-hmm. I, there's a licensure board there that has very firm opinions and, and regulations that you must follow. Mm-hmm. How do you then get to the balance of all of this? So you're not the other end, which is what I witnessed is, hey, there's a hundred people providing services and there's not a single behavior analyst or, or like certified or licensed behavior analyst driving things. Like there's got to be a balance. And, and that's where I struggle mm-hmm. with is how do we find that balance? To keep the yeah. clinical practice in place that you that you've talked about, which is the standard of actually like of a treatment, not of a of a certification per se. Yeah, you know, I don't know if there's any easy answer. Um, just again, yeah. because it all goes back to what resources and you know finances are available. I think the intention of the boards and these certifications, I think it was good. They were trying to provide some level of quality assurance and and whatnot and some sort of consumer protection, which is all great. We all want that. Um, But, yeah, I think we've fallen on that side where now things are so restrictive um, that we're limiting our outreach to folks. Um, And I I think that that'll come along as we as professionals, I think we need to provide some pushback, and I think we need to focus on some of the issues that these boards and regulations raise and how they are actually um, restricting access. So I think the more that we advocate and we provide parents and guardians and information about how this impacts, you know, those day-to-day services and support, um, I think that's where, you know, from a larger systems level, we'll see change happen. Now, it's not going to be anything quick. I mean, just like just like the evolution of these boards and licensure, it took, you know, years and years for that to come to be. Mm-hmm. And I think um, as we move along, it's just, again, this field is relatively new, applied behavior analysis. Um, yeah. And so as we move along, I think we're just, you know, going back and forth. That pendulum is swinging, and sometimes we just swing in one direction a little too far. And so there's got to be a group of us who are going to be able to push back and, and you know, make things happen. And I think – Two, you know, we see some, uh, I'd like to point to the value of um, qualitative research. So there's a bunch of behavior Mm -hmm. analysts and um, clinicians who are trained on the research that you do has to have numbers and it has to have, you know, statistically significant findings. Um, But that's where I also encourage professionals to look at the qualitative research. And that's some of the stuff that's out there where people are just writing about cases that are successful or maybe different um, frameworks or structures for, you know, group home living or community involvement where their success is noted, but maybe we don't have hard, you know, behavioral data, but that's where we should be looking to get some ideas about, you know, new and innovative ways to um, 
you know, to bring services to the broader community or maybe to make sure that there's certain, um, you know, quality checks in there. And so uh, I always encourage folks, you know, look outside of your immediate science, your immediate, you know, our Journal of Applied Behavior mm-hmm. Analysis, our Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior. Look at some of the other research in areas because we'll probably find some resolutions to some of these issues that we're facing, one of them being, you know, all of this regulatory stuff that's come upon us that's making it kind of restrictive. Um, So I think the answers are out there, but I think we need to mobilize in a more systematic way um, and present some solid information to these boards and to the consumers about, you know, what needs to happen in order to make us more accessible and, um, you know, successful in the community. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take you off the spot and just kind of close close with one kind of takeaway from everything I've heard you say just um, in, in kind of the last 10 minutes is, you know, it, obviously it's much more complicated than, than this. But what really strikes me as a takeaway um, when I, I listen to what you were just saying, but even, even kind of thinking about our last conversation last month is it almost feels like there's not enough emphasis on – is this intervention being delivered appropriately or mm-hmm. scientifically? You know, mm-hmm. we, I really, you know, you know, we've had probably four conversations in the last month since our last show on this topic of mm-hmm. if you're interviewing or inter or <laughs> interviewing, if you're implementing an intervention with fidelity as it's designed and that design lines up with the research. If you're doing all of those things, that is almost the most important thing. And, and what I really hear you saying, if, if, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if we look at these adult services, if we look at the supports, the resources, it, it really comes down to, is this intervention being implemented appropriately? clinically appropriately, scientifically appropriately, and the who and the hows is something we can kind of work on because you're right, it is an evolution, and, and it's, you know, we're talking about something, we're, we're looking at this within like what, a two-year window versus like a 30-year window of, of what's transpired up until now. It almost seems like we kind of lose sight on of that. You know, sometimes we get so focused in on some of these other things and we lose sight of the fact of, is this intervention being implemented appropriately? Yes, great. Now let's use that as the foundation to have these conversations versus does this person have this certification or do you need this or do you need that to be able to implement? It's almost like we sometimes look at the the actual outcomes of the intervention almost second or third when that should really be the first thing. Yeah, you know what's funny is um, if you go into, I just had a great experience with a medical provider uh, so personal mm-hmm. anecdote here, going in and at every step along the way from when I checked in at the front desk to when the nurse did the weight and they drew the blood and the exam, everything, what was interesting is the checklist that each one of them went through to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to ensure that things were being done with integrity. And one of the nurses actually commented because the doctor came in right after her and went through essentially the same list of questions. And she goes, oh, this patient, referring to me, is going to be tired of hearing mm-hmm. that same question. And I said, no, you know what? 
that's just telling me that you guys are really focused on the integrity with which you're delivering your services. And I actually really appreciate that and find it so interesting that I could map it out so systematically from every point of contact in that hospital situation. Um, and it was just really eye-opening to me to recognize, you know, somebody did that. Somebody made sure that that system was done in such a clean way from, you know, every different level of contact for a patient going in there. And I think that that's something, you know, we're, I wish we could get to as well. You know, from the first time mm-hmm. that a parent calls in and we go through this checklist of things that are going to help them and help us to that, you know, first interview and assessment and then that ongoing treatment. Um, If we were more systematic and we had some sort of way to ensure integrity at every different level, then I think you're right. I think we could be more successful um, in identifying when things are are working well and identifying when things aren't working so well. Um, So, again, I think our field will eventually catch up to that and will recognize that as we see more conversations about that, more research about the importance of it, but then also making comparisons to those fields like medicine where they have implemented these things and you do see a decrease in, you know, mistakes during surgery and and things of that nature. That's because they're focused on integrity. And I think, yeah, that's definitely the direction that we need to head to. It's just going to take a, it's going to take a little while. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny to tie this back in to, to our, this, this conversation we've been having today is, I wonder if we have that type of fidelity, um, does that open up the door? Does that make the system less black and white and allow more of the gray to get in when you think about teen and adult services? You know, if, mm-hmm. if you can say, you know, I feel like, because I feel like the feedback is, you know, it's always, well, you know, we, we know you guys do this, and yeah, we know, okay, great, there's some research to show this works. But we kind of want to, like, there's just a different attitude of how long, how much you should be doing for a three-year-old versus a 23-year-old. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a part of me that gets it, and there's a part of me that doesn't. And I, mm-hmm. I just wonder, does that, does that become easier to wrap your head around when you say, hey, look, we are starting to put this fidelity in place. We're starting to be able to have these standards to help us define is this going in the right direction. And does you know, I know that will help our early intervention programs, but it seems like it would really help our adult programs because if you are – wherever you fall in the system, if I'm talking about an 18-year-old, let's say, if you can say, hey, we're doing this the right way, this, is, this protocol is being followed the right way, therefore, you, you can trust that you should be getting the outcomes that we're, we're saying this kid should get, and if you're not – it's not because this is being implemented incorrectly. It's that maybe there's a, a response issue for this individual, and we need to reevaluate what treatment this kid is getting or this person is getting. And, and does so, that then? Yeah. I, I kind of makes me feel like the system will kind of function easier, particularly for an older population. Yeah, and I think that it could be more efficient in our use of time. You know, in terms of yeah. Uh, training and getting things out there, you know, maybe it's that the kid doesn't need, you know, an 18-year-old doesn't need 15 or 30 hours a week. Maybe they just need, you know, 12 really high-quality hours, making sure that, you know, we're clicking off everything to ensure that that program is delivered appropriately. So I would argue, too, not only would we see better outcomes or we could get at those outcomes 
quicker, um, it, it's a more efficient system, and it would probably end up being money-saving in the end for everyone involved um, because we're doing a better, high-quality job. So yeah. if we could get to that point, well, yeah, I think that's, that's where we need to be. We're, we're we're at the end of the show, and so I I, I kind of like hate even saying this because I feel like this could be a whole new show, but it kind of gets me. You know, I think about this concept of like the quote unquote focused intervention, the focused ABA mm-hmm. intervention, and that should fall between ten and fifteen hours. And like I think about this, and, and and this is probably where we should pick up our conversation next week is how can you be focused if you don't have fidelity. Like mm-hmm. to me, it's like they they go like they contradict one another, um, very much so. So it's like if I don't have a good fidelity measure, how can I really be focused? Because mm-hmm. that's what should be focusing me. Mhm. Absolutely. Yeah, we could go into a whole nother jumble of research and um, in researchers out there who've really drilled down at the importance, you know, and at that tipping point of, you know how much of an error within integrity can you have before you really see a huge impact on outcomes? And there's some stuff that's out there. Um, and I think it'd be great to, you know, to have a discussion about that, not only in the, you know, educational setting and an applied behavior analysis, but also how that could impact uh, adult services and community services. So absolutely. Well, everyone, you just heard next week, next month's show. Um, it was great to, to have you here with us. Um, no, I, I think I think that's. I mean, to me, that's. It feels like that's where you and I have been going in this conversation. Is mm-hmm. you know, if you think about outcomes, it really comes down to fidelity and, and how much how much wiggle room and um, and, and you know, I, I'm processing this month after month, and, and I know I've got a bunch of other questions from that, like, perspective of the practitioner in the field, in the home, seeing day-to-day life, and, and that, that idea of wiggle room, you know, how much leeway do you have, or how much drift mm-hmm. do you have from that fidelity is, is something that I know personally I, I actually don't know the answer to, is, is how, how much do you have to then stay with the, the, the measure of the of the research. I, I mean, I think I know, but um, I think it would be great for us to talk about because I think that is, as we said last show, I think that is really valuable for a, a parent, someone receiving these services to, to be aware of because mm-hmm. it, it will drive the quality of what they're getting. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you. It was great having you back. Um, I'm really looking forward to next month's conversation. I think this is uh, this is going to be an interesting direction for us to go. Um, so thank you, thank you for taking the time and uh, and coming back to us. Thanks so much, Rob. It's always a lot of fun, and hopefully we're providing some um, some food for thought, information for clinicians, and then some resources and um, good ideas for families and um, and individuals impacted by autism. So I appreciate your time as well, and it's always just a lot of fun to chat with you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, I, Hannah posed the question of I, I hope or the comment of I hope. I, I, I know you guys are getting a lot out of this. Um, you know, one thing is um, post, um, you know, as we post this on Facebook, 
um, we'll, we'll post a little reference to the research article that, um, or the meta-analysis that Hannah referenced. I think that's going to be a great resource to you guys out there who have um, children who are older who are kind of being posed that same question of, what do I point to? What, what can I reference in an IEP, in a, um, a care review with an insurance company, et cetera? Because um, the access to these resources is every bit as critical um, to kind of these arguments and, and to advocating um, for your child as it is to the, the availability of the providers out there. So, um, as always, thank you for being here. Um, summer's coming to end, so hopefully you guys are able to uh, start to get that planning rolling for your kids going back to school for uh, that post-Labor Day transition that we all experience. Um, have a great week. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at more info at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.